Live from New York, I'm Julia Chasley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Postal politics. Lawmakers were called to D.C. over a post office funding fight. Record recession. The Japanese economy contracts for a third straight quarter. And Belarus booze. Crowds heckle the president as protests grow over recent elections. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be back with you and lots coming up in the show as always, including the Digital Minister of Taiwan. We're going to be talking trust in technology and how you establish that. Critical, of course, and you can expect the sound of unity this week as the Democratic Party kiss, kicks off its unconventional convention. It's going to be virtual, of course, too. Will the markets see a Biden backtrack or will they soar to new Harris highs? Just one of the questions we'll be asking today in the Nasdaq and uh, S&P futures inching closer to fresh records. Goldman Sachs arguing that the S&P can rise a further 6% by year end. JP Morgan telling investors to stick with equities too. Both banks incorporating election risks in that view too. That said, pay attention to the Oracle of Omaha. Warren Buffett reducing bank holdings like Wells Fargo and JP Morgan while investing in precious metals miner Barrick Gold. An interesting signal, perhaps, about the economic perils going forward, too. Evidence of that all across Asia overnight, as well as I mentioned, Japan reporting its biggest growth drop on record. Thailand, meanwhile, also reporting its worst GDP numbers in some 22 years. Chinese stocks, however, rallied more than 2% after the central bank injected fresh liquidity into the financial system. Meanwhile, Singapore says it will provide near $6 billion in fresh financial aid to support the economy there. If only the U.S. Congress could give financial uh, fresh financial aid for struggling Americans to its stamp of approval. Sadly, right now, the only stamps they're talking about belong to the beleaguered U.S. Postal Office. The key question now is whether the current male melee could actually be a key to unlocking a wider stimulus bill. Let's get to the drivers and find out. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has recalled lawmakers early from summer recess as the fight over the U.S. Postal Service builds. Democrats are pushing back against changes made by a new Trump-appointed head of the service. They say the measures have slowed the mail ahead of the November election, which will see millions of extra people potentially vote by mail. Christine Romans joins us now on this story. Christine, I'm sure a lot of international viewers will be going, what on earth is going on here? The problem is more people likely to vote by mail, given we're in the middle of a pandemic. But these changes have seen the Postal Service come out and say actually in 46 states, they may not be able to service postal votes the way that they'd like to in time for the election. And people are reporting that they're already feeling a difference in their mail service. They're not getting their medications on time. They're not getting an important check in the mail that then delays them being able to pay their rent. So the, the, the consistency of the American mail service is really, really incredible here. The motto is neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their rounds. And that's something that's like very 
part of the American persona is, is it wherever you live in this country, the mail will get to you. That's not the same can't be said for some of these private uh, private package delivery companies. So the fact that people are starting to feel some uh, decline in service because of changes that a Trump appointee and the Trump administration have been making to the Postal Service is very noticeable. Add into that the idea that we are in a pandemic and there are people, uh, people who have uh, immunosuppressed diseases, people who um, maybe have children at home, people who are afraid of waiting in long lines with a lot of other people for, for an election who will want to vote by mail uh, and may not be able to get that done swiftly or, uh, you know, in, in the statutory time. That's a real problem here. So there's a a bipartisan board of governors that had recommended $25 billion to be ready for mail-in voting and for, for an election where the post office would have a bigger role. And, um, and they would like to see that money there. And, and President Trump has said out loud he doesn't want that money to go to the U.S. Postal Service because then there can be better mail by voting by mail. So he said that out loud. Now you've got Nancy Pelosi bringing the House back. And maybe, just maybe, as you pointed out, this big controversy and fight now over a funding of the mail service, more funding of the mail service, might actually be part of a new initiative for stimulus, comprehensive stimulus overall. I mean, there are so many questions there, Christine, of whether just given the short time now between where we currently lie in the elections, whether even providing any money in the short term will help facilitate the post office in, in getting those postal votes in and, and counted, quite frankly. But the bigger question here as well is, does it therefore provide some key to unlock broader stimulus? I cannot believe I've been away for a week, Christine, and we've seen no movement. And now lawmakers have all gone home. Meanwhile, millions of Americans are, are struggling to, to pay the I bills. Know. Welcome back, by the way, to where Thank we are in the very same spot where we were the last time I talked to you, uh, which is how incredibly important all the data of the last week also showed that the American economy avoided a depression because of all of the stimulus money flowing. And now it's not flowing anymore. So the trajectory of the recovery depends on what they do. Bringing back the House. An important first step here. Um, there have been a couple of senators who said they'd like to continue to talk. They'd like to come back and continue to talk uh, as well. But, I mean, time is of the essence here. And it's interesting because the president sort of is taking a victory lap and just looking at the rebound in jobs and in retail sales and saying, look, I built it once. I'm building it again. The point is that was all built on record stimulus, right? On $600 a week checks, on $1,200 uh, checks to, to households, on biz small business loans. That's all dried up. You want to keep that recovery going? you got to get Washington out of its dysfunction. Yeah, please. Christine Romans, thank you so <laughs> much for that. We'll keep discussing it, no doubt. All right, the U.S. Commerce Department says it's taking further steps to prevent the Chinese tech giant Huawei from accessing American equipment and software. Selena Wang is live in Hong Kong for us. Selena, great to have you with us. Great to be back in action with you as well. Talk us through what we know on this. Julia, it's great to be with you. So these lines just crossing right now. So the Trump administration is trying to further hamper Huawei's abilities to work with U.S. companies. They're adding 38 more affiliates to this entity's list. And the Commerce Department says that they have evidence that Huawei was using these affiliates and third parties to evade some of the earlier bans that were put on this company. Again, there are many, many Huawei affiliates that are already on this entity's list, which means that companies need a special license 
license to be able to sell to Huawei. This also just comes days after the Trump administration ended a general license that would have allowed some U.S. companies to continue working with Huawei. And set against this context of the Trump administration continuing a series of assaults against Chinese companies on the grounds of national security. You are seeing bans on companies like WeChat, on TikTok as well, all on the grounds of national security. Now, all of these companies, of course, have refuted those claims. Most recently, you also have the Trump administration putting out another executive order saying that ByteDance has 90 days now to divest the US operations of TikTok or to sell that to a US company. When I talk to security experts, when it comes to a company like ByteDance, they say that the security risks are there, but they're largely hypothetical and that selectively banning apps may not be the way forward. They say the question that the U.S. should be asking instead is how do we make the app ecosystem more secure overall and how do we better govern the massive amounts of data that many of these companies are collecting regardless of what country they're from? Yeah, I mean, there are so many challenges here. Of course, you mentioned the backdrop as well. The postponement, it seems, of virtual trade talks between the United States and China might actually not be a bad thing in light of the technology challenges which the trade representatives actually don't cover. And, of course, China's behind on making agricultural trade purchases, too. Julia, that's a great point. Amid these broader disputes that we're seeing, whether it's technology, the COVID pandemic, human rights, trade relations are actually the one stabilizing factor. Despite everything that's going on between these two countries, it still seems to be largely intact. Now, Reuters cited unnamed sources that this was delayed because of scheduling issues, because the United States wanted to give China more time to boost more U.S. purchases in order to improve the optics of the deal. According to CNN business calculations, China in July alone bought more than 4.6 metric tons of soybeans from the United States. And Larry Kudlow has said that China has substantially increased its purchases of U.S. goods. That being said, most analysts do not expect it to be feasible for China to actually meet the commitments that were signed under this phase one trade deal, given how weak the global economy is right now. According to Nomura, as of the end of June, China had only reached one fifth of its commitments for 2020. Despite that, however, David Dollar from the Brookings Institute, he makes the point that Trump is not just going to scrap this deal. It is an important part of his reelection campaign and scrapping it would likely damage the stock market and it is in the best interest of both countries given the damage caused by the pandemic to keep that trade relationship intact yes avoid asking difficult questions at this moment in time selena and uh, your point as well about the 90 days for a bite dance divesting us tiktok as well that gets us past the election as well interesting selena wang thank you so much for that selena wong sorry i keep doing that selena great to have you with us thank you all right let's move on to japan reporting its worst drop in gdp on record its economy shrank nearly eight percent in the second quarter carrie and joji has all the details a painful reminder of the virus's toll on Japan's economy, which registered the most catastrophic three-month plunge on record. GDP in the second quarter of this year dropped 7.8 percent, plunging the world's third-largest economy deeper into recession. 
The drop translates to a nearly 28% annual rate of decline, the worst since modern record-keeping began in 1980. Japan joins the likes of the U.S., the U.K., and many others that are struggling to grow as world trade slows. About half of Japan's economic activity comes from consumption, and that's been slow to rebound after a national emergency ended nearly two months ago. A surge in new virus cases since mid-July, economists say, could spell further trouble ahead. Japan has logged about 19,000 new infections in the last two and a half weeks, about a third of the total number of cases since the pandemic started. With many state relief measures set to expire at the end of September, all eyes are now on whether the Japanese government will announce new stimulus measures to keep the economy afloat. Kaori Njoji for CNN, Tokyo. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The president of Belarus says he's willing to share power and change the constitution, but not under pressure from the streets. Quote, protesters are out again today in Minsk after a rally weekend at the weekend demanding Alexander Lukashenko step down. An opposition leader now in exile says she's ready to lead the nation. CNN's Frederick Pleitgen is live in the capital. Minsk. some incredible uh, size rallies over the weekend. A difference in size, it seems, between the anti-government protests and those seemingly supporting the government. Frederick, where do we go from here? Hi there, Julia. You're absolutely right. It certainly was a historic weekend here in Minsk and certainly in all of Belarus with the opposition drawing a crowd of about 100,000 people uh, to their rally. And then you're absolutely right. Alexander Lukashenko, the longtime leader of this country, he tried to have a counter demonstration where apparently he had to bus in a lot of the demonstrators. And still that demonstration was much smaller than the one that was held by the opposition. Now, the opposition is actually continuing its pressure on Lukashenko. What you're seeing behind me is a strike at government TV. And for a very long time, State TV in this country was actually a propaganda arm of Alexander Lukashenko, but now the reporters, the anchors, and especially uh, the camera operators, actually, are saying no more. They want to report truthfully, they say, uh, on what's going on here in Belarus, on the protests, and also, of course, on the detentions and the beatings that have been taking place. Now, the opposition is demanding that Lukashenko step down and allow for new transparent elections. As you've mentioned, he's sort of hinted that he might be willing to share power, but nobody here in the opposition at least believes that that is really true. The big decisive factor actually in all of this could be economic pressure. There is a general strike going on today. There's a lot of factories that have walked on. Lukashenko tried to go to one of those factories and speak, and he was actually shouted down there, which is something that would have been unheard of only a couple of days ago in this country. People t- calling for him to go away, go away. And then he sort of left the premises there. So the opposition is certainly keeping that pressure up. Uh, they say they are not going to go away. This is not going to stop uh, until uh, until Alexander Lukashenko allows for new elections. And they do believe, Julia, that economic pressure could be what makes the difference here. Of course, Belarus, large parts of this economy are state-owned. And if large parts of that economy are not working, that certainly does to a great deal increase the pressure on Alexander Lukashenko and his regime. Julia? It certainly does. Fred, thank you so much for that report there. Fred Plankin in Minsk. All right, so to come here on First Move. The U.S. health chief called Taiwan a leader in global health during a recent visit. We're heading there next to see what the U.S. may have learned. Stay with us. Welcome back to 
first move live from New York, where U.S. stocks are on track for early session gains after a profitable week for cyclical stocks last week. Those that do well when economies improve. The Dow was the big winner, in fact, last week, rising almost 2 percent. The S&P 500 posted its third straight weekly advance, driven by gains in the likes of energy and consumer stocks. So those are the cyclicals I mentioned The old school Dow Jones Transportation Index up over 10%, in fact, too, this month back in positive territory for the year. Winners outpaced decliners by a two-to-one margin. Another sign, perhaps, that more firms are participating in the broader stock market rally and not just those big cap tech stocks that we've seen in recent months. This comes despite the World Health Organization reporting a record daily increase in COVID-19 cases this weekend. Almost 300,000 new cases in a 24-hour period. That number includes resurgence in countries previously considered to have the virus under control. South Korea warned it's facing its worst outbreak in six months, with a new cluster originating in a large church. New Zealand has delayed its election amid a second lockdown after three months without a single case. What about Taiwan? Well, they were praised by the U.S. health chief Alex Cesar for its COVID response during a recent visit there. Technologies we've discussed on First Move before played a crucial role in the uh, Taiwan's response to handling the virus. And pleased to say you're joining us now once again, Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister. Minister Tang, a pleasure to have you on the show once again. Firstly, I just want to ask, how is Taiwan doing? Are you still maintaining control of the virus outbreak? Definitely. Uh, there's continued to be no uh, local transmission or local confirmed cases. We just had a rather successful um, election for the Gaoshan mayor. So everything's going fine. And talk to me about the visit by the U.S. Health Secretary, uh, Alex Azar. He praised Taiwan's response. What do you think he took away from the visit? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so there's a memorandum of understanding to expand the collaboration on vaccination on the uh, making uh, pharmacies and also uh, making sure that um, after he visited, I think, a mask production facility, we will also uh, support the blueprints that makes sure that everybody uh, in any jurisdiction can make this kind of like two million medical masks a day um, automatically plant uh, by themselves. You know, it's interesting when you were last on the show, you told us about the incentive structure that you'd created for people quarantining, a huge fine if they break mm-hmm. it, a small amount of money mm-hmm. on a daily basis if they stick to it, mm-hmm. the, That's right. mm-hmm. the track and trace system that you put in place as well. Do you think those things are scalable in somewhere like mm-hmm. the United States? You have a 24 million person population versus, what, 330 million. Is it scalable? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think ideas uh, that are worth spreading uh, are scalable. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, when we first introduced uh, medical mask uh, rationing, uh, we know that it's not useful unless people also wash their hands thoroughly with soap. So we say uh, that you wear a mask to protect you yourself from your own unwashed hands. 
And that's a way to connect medical mask and soap together in a single message because otherwise it doesn't work. So this kind of ideas, memes, if you will, of course, are scalable. Um, as for the digital fans that we talked about last time, um, I think what made it so successful is that in Taiwan we already have the idea of people in earthquake zones, in flood areas and so on. They are uh, used to receive SMS messages based on their location without anything like GPS or Bluetooth tracking. So it's something that people are familiar with and we repurpose that. Of course, uh, in every jurisdiction, people are are used to different sort of technologies, but this re-appropriation, um, if you will, of the appropriate technology, that is the important part that wins people's trust. Yeah, you know, I think the differentiating factor at the core of what you've done is open lines of communication between the people and the government. And I'm glad you mentioned masks because while I was preparing for this interview, I read something else that had been done at the beginning with masks when convenience stores were running out. A hacker developed using Google Maps, a mm -hmm. system of identifying where masks were available and, and where they'd run out. And that tool mm -hmm. went viral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's entirely not government technology. It's entirely <laughs> civic technology. Uh, and uh, just as you described, because people were very confused as of which uh, medical mass selling pharmacies still have them and still not. Uh, and so Howard Wu, that's the name of the person, and Finjian Kiang, both from Tainan, uh, made their own version of the map. So you can see this is actually live streaming <laughs> uh, data that uh, which pharmacies still have plenty of masks that are are green, red if they run out of masks, yellow if there's something in between. And all we did was to make sure that they have the steady supply of data refresh every 30 seconds instead of every day, like most Freedom of Information Acts are. Because when it's every 30 seconds, people queuing in line can keep each other honest. If I swipe my national health insurance card, people queuing after me would expect the number to drop by nine uh, per two weeks or 10 if I'm a child. Uh, and if rather the uh, mask availability stock increases, they will call one nine two two, the toll free number, right there. So it calms everybody down. So just to be clear, because I think you're underplaying your involvement in this. This was a civil tool that was created. It went viral. You very quickly said, actually, mm -hmm. this is not something that we need to be doing with convenience stores. We should incorporate this into the national health system and the pharmacies, mm -hmm. and, and make this a tool that anybody in the country can use. Mm, that, that's exactly right. Um, the original version that is done by Howard Wu and Finjian Kiang uh, was uh, a what we call a user-generated content, meaning that it relies on people who volunteer to uh, report whether it has mask or not. So if there's not enough uh, volunteers in any region, it's not as useful. And we just uh, said uh, in our cabinet uh, mask meeting, we have a mask meeting every week, uh, I told the premier of this new tool and said that this is something that I called reverse procurement. The civil society has a better idea than we do, so we become their vendor. Uh, we implement their API and making sure that the pharmacies, uh, as you described, uh, automatically refresh the numbers so the mask uh, map can be displayed. And the best thing is that even for people with blindness and people with other disabilities, uh, they can use voice assistants like Siri or Google Voice or chatbots or any of the 140 different tools to access the same information. Yeah, and the important point was as well, you allowed this to be open source so people could update it for the visual impairment um, improvements. You also mm -hmm. trusted people not to abuse the medical system data. Mm -hmm. There's a two-way street Definitely. here, which is part Definitely. of the challenge of doing what you've done here is that there's trust on both sides. How do you ensure mm -hmm. that? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think when the government trusts the people, sometimes people trust back, some sometimes or some people don't, but that's fine. As long as we keep uh, honoring uh, our API, that's application programming interface, uh, that makes sure that all the differences between uh, the data that we have on our system and the differences, for example, in the pharmacies, because in many pharmacies in the beginning, uh, in, instead of swiping each NHI card at the beginning, they would give out those number plates and keep the NHI card at a pharmacy. So there will be a discrepancy between the uh, mask map level and the pharmacist level. And the important thing is that the people trusted the local pharmacist. And when the pharmacist called those toll-free number line, telling us that we need to change our program, we need to take into account their different schedules, pressing a key to disappear from the map, uh, and many other feature requests, <laughs> we made sure that we take it into account every week. So we have this very fast iteration that every Thursday we roll out this new system that takes care of the things that were reported by the pharmacists and people on the ground in the previous week. So this rapid iteration, I think, is the main thing that uh, garners the trust and earns the trustworthiness. Yeah, it's just a whole other level of um, digital innovation and coordination, quite frankly. And I do believe that actually Mr. Wu, who was originally developing this, was handed a $26,000 bill from Google for using the maps, which I believe mm -hmm. they waived in the end. Um, Mr. Tang, That's I right. want to ask you something else, because mm -hmm. I know that you taught yourself, you were homeschooled from, from 14 years old, mm -hmm. and there are millions of children all around the world mm -hmm. that won't be going back to school in the coming weeks. And I just, I just wanted mm -hmm. to get your advice and your wisdom on how best to motivate yourself as a young person trying to study from home? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think first of all, um, enjoying uh, like food and drink and music together uh, doesn't have to be in the same physical space. Uh, in the GovZero hackathons, we will uh, all order pizza or something. So even though we're just alone in a home or two or three people in a small room, uh, we would just enjoy the same food and drink together anyway. Uh, and so that creates this co-presence uh, framework uh, for people to feel that they are together. And I think the next thing is also to choose a a problem, a structural problem uh, that concerns everybody so that even though you may just do a little bit of, for example, the visualization for the map and the next person improves it a little bit like for people with uh, blindness or people with uh, hearing issues, people with color blindness and so on, everybody feel that they can add on something that's greater than each individual and that will make sure that you don't uh, burn yourself out or you don't uh, lose interest in that particular issue. Yeah, don't burn out. Minister Tang, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, Audrey Tang there. Thank you. Taiwan's digital Live minister. long and prosper. Thank you. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Coming up next on First Move. A national convention, unlike any we've seen before. Democrats go virtual as a new poll points to the race for the White House tightening. We've got the latest. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Trading is underway on Wall Street and stocks are beginning the session with gains as we anticipated tech, which underperformed the broader market last week, is strongest out of the gate today. Those stocks do remain near record highs. That said, market participants fear that the uncertain U.S. presidential race has the potential for creating some degree of volatility going forward. What about the stocks in the news today, including Chinese internet giant JD.com? 
They're reporting a better-than-expected 30% revenue rise in the second quarter. Rival Alibaba will be reporting on later this week. And a multi-billion dollar deal in the pharmaceutical sector too. Sanofi buying speciality U.S. drug firm Principra Biopharma for $3.7 billion. All right, uh, another top story today. The latest CNN poll suggesting the race for the White House is tightening. The survey has Joe Biden's lead over President Trump cut to just four points. Democrats will hope they can regain momentum with a national convention that kicks off in a few hours' time. The challenge is pretty unique for many reasons. For the first time, the convention will be virtual. Jessica Dean is in Wellington, Delaware, where Joe Biden lives and joins us now. Jessica, it's virtual. It's coming from all over the country, not just one place at this time around. What should we be looking for? Yeah, this is going to be really something, Julia, as the Democrats work to pull this all together remotely. So here's what we know so far. There are four main set stages, one here in Wilmington, Delaware, where you mentioned Joe Biden's hometown. Of course, that's also where Biden and Kamala Harris will be giving their speeches. Then in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the convention was originally supposed to be, Los Angeles and New York. From there, they'll have speakers spread out all across the country at different landmarks, historic landmarks. And then they've sent production kits to people at home to to, uh, film themselves live reacting. And the whole idea being that there will be a production crew and directors and producers who will be able to monitor hundreds of feeds coming in from all across the country uh, to pop up reaction shots like you would normally get within a convention center. But there's no question about it. It's going to have a very different energy. We're used to having thousands of people inside an arena cheering, uh, music, all of those sorts of things, the balloon drop, all of that, of course, going by the wayside. Uh, But the convention goes on. So it will be two hours of programming. The Speeches will be much shorter. I'm told two to five minutes when typically they can run 15, 20 minutes. So much shorter speeches. And tonight uh, we're going to hear from quite the spectrum of speakers. It's all about unity and projecting uh, unity across the Democratic Party, but also America. So to that end, they're going to have Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, the, the kind of the key figure of the liberal, most liberal part of the Democratic Party, all the way to John Kasich, who is a former Republican governor of Ohio, who's going to be speaking at the Democratic convention. So quite the spectrum there. And then, of course, uh, the biggest speech of the night coming from former First Lady Michelle Obama. Julia, you'll remember four years ago, her speech at the Democratic National Convention went viral, had a lot of people talking for a very long time, kind of become her when uh, they go low, we go high mantra, kind of became the mantra uh, for a lot of people. So we'll we'll see what the former First Lady has to say tonight. Yes. Can she achieve the same feat this time around? Jessica Dean from uh, Delaware there. Thank you so much for that update. Let's talk this through. We're now joined by Jim Messina. He was Barack Obama's campaign manager in 2012 and then his deputy chief of staff in the White House. He's now the CEO of the Messina Group. Jim, fantastic to have you on the show. United, if only in their desire for the Democratic Party here to remove Donald Trump from the White House. What are you hoping to hear from them this week? Well, I think a couple of things. You're exactly right. Right now, our party's defined by our hatred of Donald Trump. Mm. And this week is about building a proactive message about where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will take the country. And so coming out of this convention, the Democrats need to have voters understand very clearly what a Joe Biden presidency would would be. And I think that's the only goal for this week. Tonight's especially important because, as you said earlier, the most popular political figure in, in American politics is Michelle Obama. 
She's the absolute star. She's got the highest approval rating. She speaks to independent voters. And her speech tonight is really crucial for the Democrats to start the convention on a high note. In terms of policies, Jim, do they matter this week? Where do you see policy gaps for the the Biden-Harris ticket? No, look, I don't think so. We had a, you know, you've had almost no fight over the party platform. You've seen no sort of, you know, back and forth between the wings. We are united by Joe Biden and by our absolute obsession with beating Donald Trump. And so Trump kind of papers over all these things. And, you know, Biden's laid out some very clear plans. He built a platform process that involved, you know, uh, progressive voices in the party like AOC, like Bernie, like other folks. And so I think you have a United Democrats on the policy and you'll see them really try to talk about the future and try to talk about what they're going to do and really make it uh, real for swing voters. Because the problem is we've never done one of these virtual conventions. I think it's way past time. I think it's absolutely time to kind of blow up the old thing. It was boring. It went forever. And now do this in a new way. But we're going to experiment. And I think this has a real possibility of getting actual real life voters involved in what is traditionally just a bunch of party bosses. Yeah, keep it snappy and it might actually resonate more. You were the first, I think, to show what digital first looks like in terms of uh, campaigning. The Trump campaign harnessed that too to great effect in, uh, in 2016. How important is the digital spend that the Republicans are planning this week? They've said there'll be more eyes on their ads than there are on whatever the, the DNC are doing with, with their convention and the campaign here. How important is that going to be, do you think? Well, I think for Democrats, it's a concern, right? The Trump money machine is going to put everything they have this week on digital. And it's exactly what I would do if I was running his campaign. Digital is now the most important tool in the arsenals uh, for both parties, since we can't have rallies, we can't go door to door, we can't do the things we traditionally do in American politics. So digital really is absolutely crucial. And you have both sides ramping up really hard. I'm uh, co-chairman of the biggest Democratic super PAC against Trump. And we're going to match Trump dollar for dollar this week to make sure he doesn't have a clean shot at these swing voters who are starting to wake up. Traditionally, swing voters, Julia, start to wake up at the conventions and start to say, hey, what is this race and who should I be for? And so there's going to be a big contest this week for the eyeballs of American swing voters. We came into this week as well, hearing that the House is going to be recalled to debate, perhaps even vote on measures to support the postal service. I think for international viewers, they're sort of astonished by the debacle and the challenges that that this represents. Jim, what do you make of postal voting and the, the debate that's going on in the United States right now? How important is this? Yeah, it's crazy. And Americans are surprised we're having this discussion, too. Never has the Postal Service been a political issue. Usually there's the people that bring you your mail. And it's absolutely crazy because in the COVID times, you know, what we've seen in the primaries is a huge expansion in people who don't want to go to vote at the normal polling locations because of coronavirus fears. They want to vote uh, by mail. It's a traditional thing that people can do if they need to. And you're seeing really big numbers of people try to sign up. And the fact that the Postal Service now is making it more difficult to get your ballot is very anti-democratic. It's absolutely crazy. You're seeing lawsuits all over the place on it. And now Congress is going to have uh, a hearing on a Saturday, which is very strange in American politics that Congress would work on a Saturday. 
and come back to D.C. and start to legislate to say to the Postal Service, don't be a partisan deal here. Let's make sure that every American can vote. Jim, I have about 20 seconds left. Is this a pivotal enough issue to affect an election result? It could be. Last time the election, Donald Trump won three states by a total of 77,000 votes. So this is really close. Your own poll shows this race tightening. You know, this could be very close and not getting access to your ballots is a very serious challenge. Yeah, that's why it needs discussing. Jim, great to have you with us. So Jim Messina, the CEO of Messina Group and former Obama campaign manager. So great to have you on the show. Thank you. All right, still to come, with the vaccine remaining the best hope of beating coronavirus, there's been some concerning news on participation in the US trials. We've got the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Researchers at Yale believe a newly developed test will speed up coronavirus testing in the United States. The Food and Drug Administration on Saturday granted emergency authorization for the university's saliva test, which doesn't require swabs or other collection devices. The country, however, still struggling with test delays and shortages. Diane Gallagher reports. Growing concern that the U.S. is testing less for coronavirus, even as over 1,000 Americans die daily from the disease. The average number of coronavirus tests per day dropping by more than 68,000 compared to the last two weeks of July. That's according to the COVID tracking project. It may be testing fatigue or a sense that why should I get tested if the results don't come back for a week because they're not useful? This virus is still spreading widely in the communities. It's not under control yet. As testing has slowed, positive rates increased over the past week in 36 states as of Friday, according to Johns Hopkins University's Coronavirus Resource Center. In California, nearly 8,000 new cases reported on Sunday alone. The seven-day positivity rate, nearly 7%. In Illinois, the state's governor announcing new restrictions will take effect tomorrow in an area across the border from St. Louis. The Metro East region showing an eight-day average positivity rate above 8%. And Chicago's mayor warning her city is seeing a steady increase in cases fueled by people ages 18 to 29. We've just got to break through the young people that they are not immune to this virus. Meanwhile, as schools and universities continue working on their reopening plans, several reporting outbreaks. If we want to have everything working and football and schools, we need to get the community spread of this virus down. In Arizona, one school district is canceling in-person and online classes due to a large number of staff absences. The J.O. Combs Unified School District in Santan Valley, Arizona, says it does not know when instruction will resume. In Georgia, Cherokee County shutting down a third school due to a cluster of cases. More than a quarter of the students at Creekview High School in quarantine. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill reporting a fourth cluster of cases, this one based in a residence hall. And at Oklahoma State University, an off-campus sorority house locked down after reporting 23 cases. This large gathering at an off-campus housing area near the University of North Georgia going viral, sparking concern because no face masks are visible. Masks are not mandatory in Georgia. School outbreaks not concerning White House senior advisor and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who has young children. We absolutely will be sending our kids back to school, and I have no fear in doing so. 
And now new concerns over a possible delay in vaccine development. Scientists have not managed to recruit enough black or Latino volunteers for the clinical trials. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen has all the details for us. Elizabeth, great to have you on the show. Lots to discuss there. Let's talk about the recruitment for these trials and what not getting enough people from minority communities volunteering will mean in terms of potential delay. So, Julia, federal law and NIH policy say you have to have diversity in clinical trials. Ideally, you want the participants in your trial, in this case, there will be 30,000 per trial, to reflect the population that is getting sick. But when we take a look at these numbers, you'll see that is not what is happening. Let's take a look. So 350,000 people have registered online in the U.S. to be a part of these clinical trials. Only 10% of them are black and Latino, but more than half the cases in the United States are among people who are black or Latino. And so Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, he gives gives this first trial a C grade for recruiting minorities. And it's a big problem because there is a point at which the panel of experts, the safety board that's monitoring Monitoring, monitoring these trials might say, hey, guys, you are not getting the numbers that you need. We need to take more time. And as we all know, we are trying to get a vaccine quickly. Julia? So you turn to other countries potentially to be able to uh, sort of boost the, the minority participation in these trials, or does it have to be United States based only? You know, it's an interesting question, and many trials are being done outside the U.S., but this first one with Moderna, that one is being done in the U.S. They don't have Mm. trial sites set up, at least not right now, outside the U.S., and it is no quick feat to set up a trial site. You have to do a lot of structural work. You have to get permissions, et cetera, et cetera. So right now they have 89 sites, and they are all in the U.S., Wow. Okay. I was going to talk to you about saliva, but I've burned up all my time now. But I thought that was an important question to ask. We shall reconvene. Yes. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. Sounds good. (laughs) All right. Okay. Coming up on the show, Warren Buffett Goldbug. The Oracle of Omaha says goodbye to banks and hello to bullion. That's next. Stay with us. To first move where U.S. stocks now are mixed in early trading. Let me give you a look. The S&P 500 so close to making or hitting a fresh record high. We'll watch that throughout the session. But two of the leading U.S. banking stocks are pushing lower this morning after a surprise move by Warren Buffett. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, I'll just clear my throat quickly so I can continue talking. He's pairing his bank stocks and he's buying bullion, but it's tiny size as a proportion of the fund. We have to uh, have context here too. Talk us through it. Yeah, yeah. I think this is raising questions, not so much of because of the scale of what he's done, but because of how it sort of jars with right. previous pronouncements that he's made. He said uh, back in May, several times during the, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, never bet against America. He also said that banks weren't a major concern of his right now. That doesn't mean that they couldn't become that in the future, but he didn't see major problems as of now. Now, clearly, in some ways, that view has changed. As of this month, he has now reduced his holdings in Wells Fargo by 26%, in JP Morgan by 62%. But he's not getting out of the sector entirely. He is still increasing holdings in Bank of America. So, look, this, this smacks of a worry about the recovery, perhaps a worry about the sunsetting of some of the stimulus measures because they were propping up a lot of the, the sort of delinquent loans that banks were, were putting on their books. And then we have the, the, the diversification 
into the, the precious metals, gold, with, with Barrett Gold. I had to make it clear, he's not actually buying gold. He's buying a gold miner. Gold prices up by about a third since their March lows. But Barrett Gold itself is up by some 70%. So this clearly, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a good-looking stock to, to Berkshire Hathaway, but he has been very dismissive of gold in the past. So a lot of people are looking at, looking at this and thinking, has his strategy changed, Julia? Yes, in a world of global money printing is one of the uh, the safe assets perhaps going into precious metals. It is 0.3% of Berkshire's holding. So, so I think we have to hold the line on uh, calling him a gold bug right now. Maybe at some point he'll invest in Bitcoin too, and then the uh, the transition <laughs> will be complete. He didn't move his holdings of Apple, though, I note. Yes. So this is something that he, he admits he was a late investor into Apple, and he is, is sticking his ground. It's interesting, Julia, when you look at the broader market and, and the, the way the tech stocks have led Goldman Sachs in their, their weekly note pointed out that the five largest stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, which Berkshire Hathaway has also invested in, Google and Facebook, accounted for 14 percentage points of the market's 51 percent rally so far. That's five stocks out of 500. I think that really puts in perspective uh, where we are. And while they have sort of moderated and, and lost some ground uh, in, in the past few weeks, they continue to be the leaders there. And I think uh, it, it's likely that you won't see that strategy from Buffett changing for a while. This is such a great point to make, Claire. They're around those five big tech stocks are around a fifth of the broader market now in terms of weighting. So if you look at their strong performance this year and then you deduct that from the overall market performance, it gives you a very different picture in aggregate for the stock market rally that we've seen this year if you exclude those big winners. Yeah, and they have been what a lot of people have called the sort of lockdown work from home trade. You know, a lot of them, uh, particularly Amazon is, is one great example of this, have benefited from people being stuck in their homes, having to, to order things and their ability to scale in this climate. The big have been getting bigger and sort of leaving the smaller ones in their wake. I think, you know, what we've started to see over the past couple of weeks is a bit of a rotation out of tech stocks and into uh, sort of the, the 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 more the more value stocks that we see, the likes of Boeing and Caterpillar and all of that, and that has smacked uh, of some increased confidence in the recovery. But Julia, I think it's safe to say that that as we enter this next stage with sort of the the sugar rush, as some have called it, from the reopenings waning in the hopes for a vaccine taking over as the main driver uh, of growth in the stock market, I think we're going to continue to see volatility there. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting final quarter of the year. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, that just about wraps up the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, and I'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.